The Week in Doubt, episode 273. Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, the host of The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And yes, this is going to be yet another unscripted episode. Before we start, I'd like to uh, give a shout out to a fellow podcaster. Um, The name of his show is Conversations with God. He got in touch with me about a week ago, I think it was, and asked if I'd give his show a listen and let him know what I thought. Uh, So I did. Uh, I listened to the first episode so far, and I really dug it. As you might surmise from the title, Conversations with God, the format is that the host, every episode, kind of interviews God or has a back and forth uh, with this God figure, kind of this booming patriarchal voice. And... um, And I don't know how the host prefers to be labeled. I don't know if he identifies as an atheist or a skeptic, but a very nice guy. Uh, He's from across the pond, and it's a a funny and lighthearted show, but at the same time, he uh, brings up questions that really make you think. Like in the first episode, I believe he has a conversation with God where he's asking God about teeth. You know, why are teeth the way they are, why couldn't you have uh, come up with a better design? Then he goes into Cress, which I had never heard of before. Uh, This tiny little uh, plant that's used in culinary preparations, I think, and that apparently you can also use to prank your workmates by uh, planting it in their keyboards. Uh, My friend Russ Ray told me it's a very easy-to-grow plant, and you can actually grow it in wet cotton. Um, (laughs) So Cress... And I I told him I thought it was a really original idea. I don't think I'd ever seen this done in the realm of podcasting before. So kudos for coming up with such a novel approach or format or whatever. And once again, the host has a a very uh, pleasant demeanor and a very good sense of humor. So uh, if you're an atheist or a skeptic and you're looking for something that's thought-provoking but maybe more lighthearted, maybe you want to check out Conversations with God. And I'm sure it's probably available on multiple platforms or formats, but I've been downloading it via iTunes. So if you're not sure where to get the show, if, if you're interested in checking it out, just go to iTunes or use the podcast app on your iPhone or iPad, etc., And just for the sake of transparency, I am not getting compensated in any way for giving conversations with God a plug or shout out. Uh, This is simply an example of one podcaster helping another, uh, very similar to what um, myself and others used to do back when I first started out. I remember that's how uh, I first met um, Chris Weber of C-Web Sunday School, and we're still friends to this day. And I think shortly there should be an episode of his podcast, Paranormal Skeptic Academy, uh, coming out that I appear in. So I'll keep you guys briefed on that. And you know, it's funny, speaking of uh, money or compensation, I was trying to think of ways to help monetize the podcast. And uh, I remember back in the day, I, I used to plug Audible, at the uh, the beginning or the end of every episode. That went on for quite a while, and I don't think I ever made a single dime doing that, uh, except I remember, um, I'll try not to uh, digress. Uh, this is always a kind of touchy topic for me. I had uh, one listener that I felt like I was re- became really good uh, online friends with, and then we had kind of like a, 
falling out sounds like too strong of a term, but they stopped listening to me because they disagreed with some stuff I said in one or two episodes. But they actually tried to support me through Audible at one time, and I never saw a penny of the money because Audible said that she must have had her ad block on or something like that. And uh, I think that happened one other time. So I was like, screw it. You know, why am I wasting my time showing this product or service uh, doing these spots when I'm not getting anything out of it? And the only thing it's probably accomplishing is to annoy my listeners. So uh, I, I ditched Audible a long time ago. And then I noticed that Podbean is now offering um, commercial spots. You can choose the commercial uh, where in the uh, in the episode you want it inserted, etc. But I don't want to uh, be a complete sellout. You know, I, if I'm going to shill something, <laughs> it's kind of a harsh way to put it. Um, I want it to be a product that I actually believe in or that I can sleep at night after endorsing, you know? And I didn't really see any products or services that I was really familiar with or that pertain to, you know, the spirit of the show or the subject matter of the show at all. Um, so I thought maybe I would pursue sponsorship with uh, Blue Microphones, because I've been using a Blue Yeti since the very beginning of this podcast, and it's served me very well. It's a uh, very good microphone. Terrific, terrific mic. I know mics, and no one makes a better mic than Blue. I don't know. I think that might have sounded more like Bernie Sanders. I was trying to do a Trump. but uh, And I was thinking, wow, that'd be perfect. You know, I actually use their product to, to record the show. That, that would make perfect sense. But then... Um, I have another mic that came out about a year ago. It's the mic that failed me while I was doing that Skype call with the free Thought Profit podcast. And uh, Blue always has funny names for them mics. Uh, like I just said, the one I use to record the show usually is called a Blue Yeti. And this little one I bought about a year ago is called a Blue Raspberry. <laughs> and I barely used it. And it's a little, it has kind of an old-fashioned look to it, but it's a small, uh, compact mic and it's meant so you can plug it directly into an iOS device, or um, you can also plug it into a laptop or a computer or whatever. And um, the thing has never worked properly. The light doesn't even stay on. And I opened a case with blue back on the 8th, and it's now the 26th, and it still says, in review, awaiting support. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, before I start pushing, you know, their products or, or services, uh, perhaps I should wait till they actually come through for me and prove that they're like a, a stand-up company or whatever. And I can't believe we're already about eight minutes in and I haven't even begun to delve into today's topic yet. And a big reason why this is going to be yet another unscripted episode is because there's going to be so much stuff to cover today and... I felt like if I was going to write a neat, organized script, it would probably take me another week or two. And I wanted to put out a show for you guys. And I know all the points that I want to touch on. And I did my research. So I'm just going to have to wing it and go point by point and uh, do my best here. 
And it's going to be yet another Flat Earth episode. And if I have time, I'll try to throw a couple of news stories in. And I knew when I released last week's episode entitled um, Phil's Flat Earth Meltdown that I was inevitably going to hear from some Flat Earthers. And I did. A few uh, people chimed in in the comments section. And, you know, I feel like I vented last week with that rant. And I decided to try to just be more calm and amenable and uh, diplomatic. And, and so instead of butting heads with people with uh, opposing views in the comments section, I listened to what they had to say. And basically the gist of what I said was, okay, I'll look into it and I'll let you know. And people brought up a, a few different points that um, I want to cover or attempt to refute, I guess. And on that note, before we begin, I want to make one quick correction. I was rattling off a list of pre-Socratic and Socratic philosophers, uh, ancient Greek philosophers, and among them was Eratosthenes. And I accidentally, I think I said Aristophanes, who uh, is an ancient Greek playwright. Uh, and I'm well aware of the two figures and their differences. But for some reason, I, I just, Aristophanes came out. And Aratosphenes, to be precise, was an ancient Greek astronomer. And the reason why I was mentioning him is because he had estimated the Earth's circumference back in the 3rd century BC or BCE. All right, so here's the part where I have to brace myself. I'm going to the YouTube uh, channel, and I'm getting ready to check out the um, the video, Phil's Flat Earth Meltdown, episode 272, and see what the like-to-dislike ratio is. And at the moment, it only has 89 views. It's very strange. Um, some videos, like my Krampus video, I think my Krampus video has like 17,000 views or something like that. My... Um, Founding Fathers on Religion has thousands and thousands of uh, hits. But then uh, other times, the uh, the view count is quite humble, to say the least. So only 89 views right now. And, oh, okay, we have eight thumbs up and two down. And there's my friend the Electric Owl in the comment section. Jesus Christ, Phil, what's with, what's with all the flat earthers in your comment section now? And here's uh, one of my favorite... YouTube viewers, and I hadn't heard from him in a while, uh, but he chimed in on this one. Ooh, it looks like someone gave him a thumbs down. I thought I already gave him a thumbs up, but there I go again, just in case. People who believe silly things and do not come up against hard resistance to their ideas until they are indoctrinated are frustrating. They have invested hundreds of hours confirming their beliefs, and they feel the need to propagate their silly ideas, searching for people to convert that will in some way validate their worldview. You cannot prove that the Earth is round, the moon landings are real, chemtrails are water contrails, Planet X is not real, God is not real. To these people in 30 minutes, those hundreds of hours that they have invested in confirming their silly ideas has convinced them. Not to say that even 60 seconds of your time is wasted trying to break down silly ideas. It all adds up, chipping away a little of the silly. And so I know I stated a little bit ago that I wanted to try to be diplomatic, and that's true. Uh, so I know this might piss off some of the uh, flat earthers who will be listening or viewing this, but I thought that was a really 
insightful and well-worded comment on CCD Images' part. You know, and still, obviously, I have my worldview. You can tell which way I, I lean. I lean towards the side of uh, materialistic science, mainstream science, what have you. But I'm going to try to be as fair and objective as possible. And I, I want to state right out of the gate, I pretty much can predict how this is going to go. Um, and I think it's why this things like this are never put to rest. Because I'm going to take the points that they make and I'm going to offer, I guess what you could call it, you know, a mainstream scientific rebuttal. And even though we'll probably think that the mainstream narrative is founded on science and reason and uh, makes perfect sense. I think people on the other side of the argument, the um, and I'm not trying to say this as a pejorative, I don't know what you guys prefer to be called, but um, flat earthers, I guess. I, I think you guys are probably going to listen to those rebuttals and think that they don't hold water and that you've heard them before. And you'll probably have a rebuttal of the rebuttal. And so I think, you know, it's pretty much just going to be back and forth. It's going to be circular. Um, neither side is probably going to end up giving any ground, but at least we're discussing the topic and at least hopefully it'll be a conversation that gets people thinking, you know? And as uh, Mr. Medicare says, you know, never hurts to get the noggin jogging. <laughs> um... And I'm drinking rum and Coke, by the way. And uh, not rum and Pepsi, actually rum and Coke. Uh, but uh, I don't even think I'm buzzed yet. And in fact, I liked CCD Images' uh, post so much that I actually asked his permission to post it on the Weekend Out Facebook page, which I, uh, which I did. And every time I uh, read his name, CCD Image, it makes me think of CCD. Was it uh, Confraternity of Christian Doctrine? Um I think uh, I had to go through that as a kid, as uh, someone with a Catholic upbringing. CCD in Sunday school. I'm not sure where one begins and the other ends. Uh, I can't remember. But I, I know I had, to, I had to go through that hell up until uh, my high school years. Okay, so then someone named uh, Truth Seeker. I'm trying to figure out what their icon is. It almost looks like a satanic Michelin man. I'm, I'm not sure what it is. But... Uh, they say, show us a picture using a rectilinear lens that shows curvature of oceans. And I replied, hi, thanks for the response. I will look into it. And I don't know if they thought that was a brush off or not. It wasn't. Um, you know, I'm of the mindset that if I'm going to claim that one of the main goals of the show is to try to get at the truth and to be as intellectually honest as possible... Um, it's not enough just to hold on to my narrative and say, I think your narrative's crazy, so I'm not going to look into, into any of your claims. Of course, uh, no, I don't think the earth is flat, and I don't think there's a real chance I'm going to discover that it's flat by uh, investigating these people's claims, but I think it's the right thing to do to at least pick up the gauntlet and do the legwork look into it for myself, and I figure, you know, what is there to lose? Um, worse comes the worse, at least I'll have bettered myself a bit by reading up on some uh, science or whatever, you know? 
And they replied after I said, I'll look into it. <laughs> they said, it doesn't exist. And then, uh, kind of winky face <laughs> emoticon. And so I've, I'd heard this argument before about using cameras, uh, GoPros, weather balloons, that type of thing to try to uh, prove that the earth is flat or whatever. And I've heard other people offer rebuttals, but it's been a while. So I decided to dig in for myself and, you know, kind of give myself a refresher course. So a rectolinear lens. And uh, let's just get out of the way. I have a juvenile sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> rectal. Different spelling. Rectum. I damn near killed him. Rectory is also a funny word. <clears throat> Catholic priests, they'll always get you in the rectory. But uh, <laughs> I, I can make that joke. I might be an atheist, but I was raised Catholic. But uh, let's see. <laughs> anyway, so the reason why flat earthers often bring up rectilinear lenses is there's a complaint that with regular wide angle lenses that they're susceptible to what's known as lens barreling or barrel distortion. And I'll include some images for the YouTube version. And so I believe the way it goes is that if the horizon is below the center of the lens, you get this kind of concave distortion where the horizon looks curved downward or dipped. And if the horizon is above the center of the lens, you get a, a kind of convex distortion or a kind of dome-shaped distortion. And supposedly the, the most accurate image you can get is by trying to get the horizon through the center of the lens. Kind of dead nuts through the, the crosshairs, as they say. Dead nuts. I remember the first time I heard that was from a design teacher. I was working with Adobe Illustrator, and uh, he thought I had the elements lined up perfectly that I was working with in my, my uh, drawing. He, he referred to it as dead nuts. Now, once again, this kind of uh, barrel distortion, whatever I was talking about, this occurs, I guess, with um, your more typical wide-angle lenses. And supposedly rectilinear lenses try to compensate for this kind of distortion. And so this is why flat earthers like to bring up rectilinear lenses, because uh, it's believed you can get a more accurate interpretation or depiction of the Earth's curvature or lack thereof by using a rectilinear lens. But I think at least on one site I was reading, they were claiming that rectilinear lenses, at least wide-angle ones, are usually significantly more uh, expensive or harder to make or something like that. And I'm, I'm just looking at uh, a kind of photography enthusiast site, and they're talking about rectilinear uh, wide-angle lenses or at least what are the widest available rectilinear lenses. And this is from 2016, so I don't know what kind of innovations have taken place since then. But they're talking about a Chinese lens maker named Venus Optics. Um, what is it? A, a Laoa? Laoa? I don't know how you pronounce it, but a uh, 12 millimeter f2.8 lens. And at this time, in 2016, it was said to be the world's widest rectilinear lens. Uh, the company was marketing it as 0D, meaning zero distortion, a zero distortion lens. 
and I guess Canon at, at the time at least had a rectilinear lens that wasn't far behind. And the reason for that boring little digression was um, just to make the point that relatively wide rectilinear lenses do exist. So the, the technology, I guess, uh, is technically available. And I believe I mentioned last week how the curvature of the Earth supposedly becomes uh, somewhat detectable at around 35,000 feet. Uh, th that seems to be the scientific consensus. And so supposedly you can measure the curvature of the Earth at this height, 35,000 feet, but it's not all that perceptible. So um, flat earthers will talk about trying to detect the curvature at 100,000 feet. And I imagine from their point of view, they'd want it to be with a rectilinear lens. And there is actually pictures and video footage of the Earth from a, about 100,000 feet up where you can see the curvature and not with a rectilinear lens. Um, and one particular video I'm looking at now, the person was looking for a frame where the horizon was about one pixel below dead center. And in this image, you can you can visibly see the curvature of the Earth. And the person was actually making the point that since, uh, for lack of a better term, the arms of the Earth, I guess, you know, the, the very sides of the image, since we're dealing with a curved image, um, the sides are dipping down below the center of the lens. So you actually have that kind of, like a slight barrel distortion effect making the curvature seem subtler than it actually is. Because once again, to reiterate, the arms at either side of the frame are actually dipping down below the center of the lens and are subject to that distortion. But even then, the curvature of the Earth is still plainly visible. Okay, and so in the spirit of intellectual honesty, you know, I want to try to be as honest and upfront as possible. I don't want to get accused of trying to hide biased sources or, or something like that. So in full disclosure, the site I was just looking at is called Flat Earth Insanity, all one word, dot blogspot.com. Sounds pretty damn biased, I know. Uh, but the, the guy seems to do really thorough research provides very in-depth scientific refutations of flat-earth claims. But if, if you're someone on the opposing side and you want to, you know, vet where I'm getting this information from, these points I researched, uh, just I, I went all over the net looking for different sources. Uh, this one right here just happens to be the one I'm referencing at the moment in regard to uh, high altitude and the curvature of the Earth. So the exact page is, you know, go to flatearthandsandy.blogspot.com and look for a page entitled Flat Earth Follies, High Altitude Balloon Footage Proves Flat Earth. And under it says, well, no, not even a little bit. And so obviously this guy has an agenda, like myself. He's coming at it from... Um, a mainstream scientific point of view, but that doesn't necessarily mean that what he's saying isn't accurate. So I, I would actually urge you to 
go to this site and read what the guy has to say and make up your own mind. If anyone wants to add more links in the comments section, please do. I welcome discussion. Whether you're a proponent of the flat earth theory or if you're coming at it from my side of the argument, uh, yeah, please chime in. Um, add some links down there. If anything gets flagged as spam because there's a link included, uh, I'll, I'll try to catch it and allow it to post. And as far as trying to capture the curve of the ocean, there actually is a metabunk.org page uh, entitled How to Take a Photo of the Curve of the Horizon. It looks like it's actually by Mick West, who is a skeptic. And I actually recently saw him on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. And they're purporting to actually show an image of the sea that demonstrates or shows the curvature of the Earth. And there is a section on this page about rectilinear lenses. And I don't know if the uh, camera in question was a P900. I'm not sure. It's a very long article here. You know, they have side-by-sides of curvilinear versus rectilinear lenses. And it says, perfectly rectilinear lenses can be hard to find and expensive. However, an obvious thing we can do is don't use fisheye lenses. Fisheye lenses are highly curvilinear. Basically, you want to use a lens that is as rectilinear as possible. Non-DSLR camera like the Nikon P900 and even the iPhone or other phone camera might work. However, you've got a more limited field of view and lower quality sensors, so you then become more dependent on other factors. Point and shoot might work, especially if you've got good atmospheric and lighting conditions, but there are things you can do to improve the quality of the image. Best quality, you want the image setting to be as high resolution as possible. If your camera allows RAW, then use RAW. Otherwise, set the image size and image quality to the highest it will go. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Focus on the horizon. The horizon is what we want to see, so if the camera focuses on a window or nearby people, then the horizon might end up blurry. If you need to, then use manual focus to get the horizon as sharp as possible. Then it talks about wide-angle lenses once again, and as you would expect, lens distortion, trying to compensate or minimize lens distortion uh, using a straight edge. Yeah, in fairness, I think the kind of smoking gun image here has been manipulated to exaggerate the curvature so it's more visible, just in fairness. But uh, So if you want to check this out again, it's metabunk.org, how to take a photo of the curve of the horizon. And so in, in fairness to the person who demanded an image of the curvature of the Earth, and specifically the curvature depicted at sea. Yeah, in fairness to you, I don't think this technically fits the bill because I don't, I don't think they're using a rectilinear lens here. But from these articles I've read and from the browsing I've done, it seems like, uh, I mean, it's been proven sufficiently to me that you can successfully detect the curvature of the Earth using cameras. So, um... Even though, in fairness to you once again, they're not showing the curvature of the Earth at sea using a rectilinear uh, lens, even though they're not meeting that specific criteria, I mean, I I'm not too worried. That doesn't prove to me that the Earth is flat or seem to, uh, or, you know, the evidence at hand doesn't seem to uh, lend itself to that argument.
as far as I can tell, the evidence seems to suggest, and once again, I, it seems to be proven sufficiently to me, that the Earth is spherical and, it, and the curvature can be detected with cameras. And once again, I want to try to stay diplomatic. I'm not trying to start anything. I don't want to insult you guys on the other side. I'm sure you won't agree with me and that you'll probably have some refutation of my refutation. And like I said, that's pretty much what I predict. I, I don't think any of us on our respective sides are going to end up giving ground. Okay, then uh, another commenter says, and their name I think is Yuri Van Stratton. Hopefully I'm not butchering that. Uh, apologies if I am. But they say, if you are truly open-minded, you have already seen the high-altitude balloon footage and know the curvature isn't found at over 100,000 feet. Uh, and we kind of just explored that. It says, also many people's videos showing the stuctures. Uh, I think stuctures is an, an actual word. I tried to use context clues to figure out what it meant online, but I'm not sure. Uh, most of them took me to uh, pages that were uh, rendered in other languages, showing the structures when they should be hidden by curvature. I don't know if it's another form of structure or, or what it means specifically. The fact that okay, the fact that satellites within the thermosphere should melt. So I had this person's first argument in mind and the other person's about the rectilinear lens when I covered what I just covered about uh, detecting the curvature of the Earth at high altitude. So that's that. Um, the point about the uh, structures, or however it's pronounced, I'm, I'm not even sure uh, what the exact point they're making is. Oh, I, maybe it is just another form of structure. And he's saying that structures on the horizon or whatever should be hidden by the curvature of the Earth if we're actually seeing the curve of the Earth. But they're still visible, which maybe from his point of view would mean he's suspicious there's some hanky-panky going on. Did I really just say hanky-panky? Or, you know, there's some kind of photo manipulation going on or whatever. I don't know. Okay, so I'll take on the uh, argument he makes that satellites should melt uh, within the uh, thermosphere. And my layman summary of the mainstream scientific rebuttal would be that, you know, from what I've read, objects not only take on heat, but heat is also radiated away. And satellites are designed so that a certain amount of heat is radiated away from the satellite itself, uh, allowing it to maintain a kind of stable temperature. And actually, here's uh, a bit from, uh, this is Mick West again. Radiation also cools things down. Any object that is heated up will radiate that heat away. The hotter it gets, the more heat it radiates per second. So as the sun's input is constant, eventually the object will reach a temperature at which it is radiating the same amount of heat as it is absorbing. This is known as the radiative equilibrium temperature. Part of satellite design is in minimizing the absorbed radiation and maximizing the radiated radiation. There's whole books on the topic, and then he provides a link. And that's from Metabunk again, too, just so you guys on either side of the argument know where I'm getting this stuff from, and so you can check it out yourself. 
in fairness, Mick West is a, uh, well, he was a video game programmer and uh, a science, or it's pr- probably could say he still is a science writer, uh, self-identifies as a debunker, says his primary focus at the moment is on investigating and explaining conspiracy theories such as chemtrails, 9-11, false flags, also says he covers more esoteric topics such as UFOs, etc., so I imagine people on the other side of the argument are going to say, well, he's coming at it from a biased position. And as far as his bona fides go, it doesn't sound like he's qualified. Oh, he used to be a video game programmer. But if the science checks out, it checks out. You know, and I would urge anyone who is maybe suspicious to go check out these sources I'm citing and double check them. See if you can prove them wrong. You know, go for it. So he might not have, I mean, I don't know what scientific credentials he does or doesn't have outside of being a uh, quote-unquote science writer. I think uh, Brian Dunning from Skeptoid refers to himself as a science writer as well. Uh, I mean, I guess the thing that matters the most is is what they're saying, true or not. As far as I can tell, Mick West seems to give pretty well-worded, responsible scientific explanations. But if someone has an issue with something he said or with one of his ideas, once again, I urge you to, you know, try to fact check it for yourself. Okay, so the next point this other person makes is combustion in a, or the argument rather, is that combustion in a vacuum is impossible, let alone navigation through space. And so once again, first, just to give you my layman's breakdown or summary from what I was able to glean from le- reading online articles, um, fire in space is technically possible, but less predictable than it is, you know, in Earth's atmosphere. And combustion and navigation are also possible, yet it is tricky and it takes a lot of forethought and calculation to try to predict you know, how the rocket is going to behave in space. And it's basically as a result of, you know, the velocity of the fuel that's being expended versus the weight or mass of the rocket or, you know, the, the device or craft itself. And so there's an article here from Smithsonian Magazine. Uh, what you guys on the other side of the argument think about... uh Smithsonian, I don't know. This is from December 2012. It's entitled, In Space Flames Behave in Ways Nobody Thought Possible. Combustion experiments conducted in zero gravity yield surprising results. Recent tests aboard the International Space Station have shown that fire in space can be less predictable and potentially more lethal than it is on Earth. Now, I'll read a little bit from this next paragraph. It's just saying, Here on Earth, when a flame burns... It heats the surrounding atmosphere, causing the air to expand and become less dense. The pull of gravity draws colder, denser air down to the base of the flame, displacing the hot air, which rises. This convection process feeds fresh oxygen to the fire, which burns until it runs out of fuel. Let's see. 
But odd things happen in space where gravity loses its grip on solids, liquids, and gases. Without gravity, hot air expands but doesn't move upward. The flame persists because of the diffusion of oxygen, with random oxygen molecules drifting into the fire, absent the upward flow of hot air. Fires in microgravity are dome-shaped or spherical. Okay, okay. NASA scientists, I know you guys think of NASA, are especially excited about the potential applications for a bizarre, unprecedented type of combustion they observed in space this past spring. When certain types of liquid fuel catch fire, they continue the burn even when the flame appears to have been extinguished. The fuel combustion occurs in two stages. The first, fire burns with visible flame. That eventually goes out, but shortly afterward, the fuel reignites, taking the form of quote-unquote cool flames that burn at lower temperatures and are invisible to the naked eye. And so you might be saying, uh, maybe you're not talking about space in general, say, on board a space station, but you're talking about combustion in the true vacuum of space. So here's another article on the subject I happen to be reading. And this one, strangely enough, is from Steam It. And I was actually watching a TJ Kirk, you know, aka The Amazing Atheist, a video last night where he was talking about Steemit's video platform and how it might be a good alternative to YouTube. <laughs> you know, if things keep on going the way they are with YouTube regarding monetization and that kind of thing. But anyway, so uh, it's entitled Rebuttal to Flat Earth Argument. Space travel impossible since rockets have nothing to push against in space. Would rocket engines firing in space not be able to affect the motion of the spacecraft since they have nothing to push against in the vacuum of space? And in preparation for their rebuttal, they're explaining the flat earth theorist uh, side. A spacecraft in space firing its rocket engine would have nothing to push against. Therefore, the firing of its rocket engine would have no effect on its motion. Therefore, space travel as commonly believed to be possible is actually impossible. Therefore, the space program and space travel are fake and a complete hoax. See, and it says, uh, this argument appears to make sense, but does not take into account the proper application of basic principles of physics that are well established by experiments that can be done here on Earth. The main principle of physics here is known as conservation of momentum. Linear momentum is the product of mass and velocity. And they go on to, uh, try to demonstrate their point with this very boring analogy about, uh, figure skaters or something like that, or ice skaters. I'll skip down. And there's a bunch of uh, math and stuff that's over my head. So for a spacecraft in space, firing its rocket engine, you have the mass of the spacecraft and the mass of the reacted rocket fuel that is ejected at high velocity upon firing. In this case, the spacecraft is quite heavy compared to the very light rocket fuel. But the rocket fuel is expelled at such a high velocity that it pushes against the rocket, and the rocket pushes against it as they part ways. The total momentum of the rocket fuel system looked at as a whole will remain the same. The heavier spacecraft will go off in one direction at lower velocity, while the much lighter rocket fuel will go off in the other direction at a much higher velocity. So this is how rockets work in space, so as to change the motion or velocity of the spacecraft. That gets into, you know, trying to actually control the craft, calculating thrust, that sort of thing. Then let's see, continuing... The fact that none of the Apollo suits and equipment had any radiation protection, which should have caused their deaths, 
As it is stated, when the radioactive particles within the Van Allen belt come into contact with metal, they form X-rays. Okay, and, and so just for reference, that last article I, I was sourcing, uh, that comes from a place called, uh, I think it's called the Apollo Archives. And I know uh, you people on the other side are probably suspicious of anything to do with NASA uh, etc. I'm not sure if that uh, Apollo Archives site is officially affiliated with NASA or if it's just some private third-party thing. I don't know. But I think from that same site, I was reading that traveling through the Van Allen radiation belt, uh, that was a real concern. But the idea was to keep the astronauts passing through the belts for as short amount of time as possible. And in fact, uh, I think supposedly the astronauts were only exposed to, I think it was two REMs and a, and a REM is a unit of radiation exposure two REMs. And to put that into perspective, I guess uh, emergency workers during some kind of, radiation accident or something like that, nuclear radiation accident, exposure accident, are allowed about 25 REMs. So the astronauts passing through the Van Allen radiation belt were exposed to just a fraction of that. And I was just looking at a popular science article. Yeah, it's saying that over the course of the lunar missions, astronauts were exposed to doses lower than the yearly 5 REM average experienced by workers with the Atomic Energy Commission who regularly deal with radioactive materials. And I think in that other article I was reading that it's at doses in the hundreds. I don't know if it was uh, 200, 300, whatever it was. Uh, don't take my word for the, the exact figure. But somewhere in the hundreds of REMS is where you start getting vomiting, organ failure, um where you've probably got a couple of months or even weeks to live. And if it goes really high, I mean, then you're in, in real trouble. Deterioration of your health can be even more rapid and death can even come more quickly. Yeah, I'm looking at that Apollo Archive site again. It's saying a, a modern chest x-ray will deliver about 10 to 20 millirems. So a fraction of the two rems that uh, the Apollo astronauts were... Uh, supposedly exposed to 100 to 200 rems a person will experience nausea several hours after exposure above 300 rems severe vomiting and hemorrhaging will result nearly immediately loss of hair and other health effects will result fairly rapidly greater than half of the people exposed to this much radiation will die within two months above 800 rems diarrhea dehydration and problems with digestive organs will result rapidly over 90 percent of people exposed to this much radiation will die within two weeks so two rems is certainly a lot but by no means would it cause instant death or illness well then the person ends with saying you went over it all is just your way of saying, I just want to shit on your beliefs without having to actually engaging. So uh, English might not be their first uh, language, but not bad. I'm not trying to uh, poke fun or anything. Without having to actually engaging in the topic, which is your right, but it just shows you made this for likes. 
And, um, okay. So, I actually kind of, not to be like Bill Clinton, I feel your pain. Uh, I, I do actually kind of feel their pain. Um, still drinking rum and coke. Or their frustration. You know? Um, where they see me saying, I've been over this before. I'm, I don't feel like addressing your concerns or whatever, you know? Or where I was kind of really kind of flustered and saying, I didn't want to have to go over all the information again every time a new conspiracy theorist popped up. You know, it gets a little old or it gets exhausting. And, and that is true, but it's also, you know, um, if I listen to the kind of better angels of my being, I feel like I do have some kind of duty within limits to offer some kind of factual or well-reasoned rebuttal to what uh, people on the other side are coming at me with, you know. Um, but where he says that I did this for likes, that's where he actually, you know, couldn't be more wrong. Just could not be more wrong. I actually, whenever I talk about something really controversial, like the Flat Earth or 9-11, these kind of conspiracy theory topics, I actually get a little nervous making episodes about this stuff, especially releasing YouTube versions of those episodes, because there's a lot of hardcore adherence of these kind of quote-unquote fringe theories on YouTube. And there's always a good risk of getting downvoted rather quickly. Um, sometimes the, the pro-conspiracy theory set can be much more passionate and kind of fiery and hardcore and aggressive than the people on the kind of the mainstream science side of the aisle. Um, you know, the skeptics, the people on my side of the argument, the people, you know, embracing the mainstream scientific version of things, um, they're more likely to, I think, you know, maybe scoff at um, these conspiracy theories uh, kind of wave them off, but I don't think they're as zealous as the conspiracy theorists themselves are. Um, so there's always the risk that when you're covering these kind of topics that can backfire and, uh, you can end up getting buried in down votes and criticism. So my worry with these conspiracy theory episodes it's actually it's the opposite i'm afraid i'm gonna get buried in dislikes um i was actually pleasantly surprised to see there was only two down votes on the last video it actually surprised me and that risk is there to some degree with any kind of divisive topic you know if you're discussing politics or trump or whatever it is you know anything divisive like that you never know um what's going to be awaiting you in the comment section or what your like to dislike ratio is going to end up being. But I think no matter what though, I will always leave the ability to comment and like or dislike enabled, you know, uh, you know, I'm trying to remain in kind of diplomatic mode right now, try to kind of be Mr. Nice guy, but I do think it's kind of chicken shit when people, and I don't care what side, of the argument you're on when people disable comments or disable the ability to like or dislike a video. I mean, if you stand by your convictions, if you believe in what you're saying, let the, let the chips fall where they may, 
who cares if people, you know, kind of tear into you in the comment section or downvote your video on mass. I mean, it doesn't feel good. And, and I, I don't want that. You know, I think anyone who makes YouTube content is, is afraid to some degree of that or dreads having that happen. But I don't think that fear is worth kind of cutting off others' freedom of speech or ability to offer their opinion. Um, whether it's someone on either side of the flat earth argument, whether it's someone like uh, Anita Sarkeesian or whatever, let people say what they want to say. Um, if you're really that afraid of having your feelings hurt or whatever or being challenged, don't read the comments, you know? Um but let people upvote or downvote your video. Let people say what they have to say. That's I, once again, I encourage people on both sides jump into the fray, man. You know, present your evidence, offer rebuttals. Hopefully, be you know civil. Um, I have regular viewers that I consider friends now that have been watching my videos for you know probably a couple of years or something, and I don't want them disrespected. You know, and uh, I don't want the comment section to devolve into a cesspool or anything. So I appreciate it if people remain civil. But if people want to, you know, um, have at it and uh, battle back and forth, you know, using argumentation and evidence, uh, etc., you know, have at it. I, I, I love it. I, I welcome it. But I'm probably going to leave it with that. So like I said, I doubt anyone's mind has been changed. Those of us who are skeptical of the flat earth uh, hypothesis or theory, you'll probably listen to what I have to say, to those excerpts I read, to what I relayed from my research online, and probably feel maybe even more convinced that the mainstream narrative is, uh, is true, that the, um, the idea of a spherical earth is well-founded scientifically. And those of you on the other side of the argument, you'll probably question my sources. You'll probably think that I didn't answer everything, or at least not adequately. You might think that my rebuttals were problematic in some way or lacking. So once again, I don't expect anyone's mind to be changed, but I think it's good at least to have an open discussion and to engage the topic, you know, get the noggin jogging once again. But all right, I'll probably leave with that. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, this has been The Week in Doubt. You know the drill, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Maybe you're watching uh, the YouTube version now. If you want to help the show out monetarily, you can uh, use the PayPal widget on the Podbean page. There's all that alliteration. Or I think uh, Podbean has a a, uh, a kind of Patreon-esque type of service now where you can support me that way. I did have a listener, uh, someone I consider a friend and a listener, tell me they were interested in possibly using Podbean to support the show. Uh, I'm not sure if they've actually done that yet or not or what. Or you can use uh, Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. And speaking of Patreon, I gotta come up with some more bonus content soon. I've been thinking about resurrecting that kind of uh 
I don't know if I'd say a live show, but it ha- a show that I meant to have kind of a live feel. And that's kind of casual where I play music and talk about things that don't necessarily fall into the usual wheelhouse of the show. Maybe I'll start doing that again. We'll see. Uh, but all right. Once again, thanks, everyone. Till next week. Mm-hmm.